exciting is it to see such a, an awesome choir and them leading us in worship. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate Pastor Nate and his leadership. I'm thankful for the partnership in the gospel that we have. Um, this past week, he had the chance to lead us um, as a state. We uh, Here in New Orleans at Franklin Avenue Baptist Church, we hosted the Louisiana Baptist Convention. We had Steve Horn, our executive director here last week that was preaching. And uh, Pastor Nate, as well as others uh, from over the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, Jamie Dew was leading in God's Word on Tuesday. And so just great representation from our city, from our church. And so we're so thankful for what God is doing. This morning, I want to invite you to turn in God's Word to Haggai. Haggai is a small book of the Bible, so don't be ashamed at all to use the table of contents to find yourself, you find your way there. Um, it's at the very end of the Old Testament. So if you get to like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just turn a left, you know, hang left and, and head back. Um, it's in between two books that start with the letter Z, okay? So that's where you'll find Haggai. And Haggai is a prophet. He was a man just like, you know, just like one of us, but God was using this man in a very specific way at a very specific time in order to get God's people's attention. Um, their attention had been distracted and there was a lot of things going on. Part of it was that they had gone through this a displacement, a removal, an exile that had taken them out of their land and they had now returned, but things were not at all back to normal. Um, if anything, it just seemed like, you know, complete chaos in comparison to what was. And so they're trying to rebuild and they're trying to rebuild their lives. And in some ways they had, but in the main way they hadn't. Um, they, had, they had missed the, the main point, which was God, and that that was the defining mark of who they were as God's people was God and God being at the center. And that was shown through the neglect of building his temple. And it wasn't just that God is really into buildings and he just really wants a building. Um, a, a lot of times, and I've kind of acknowledged this through the series, is that sometimes well-intentioned pastors can begin to kind of make it like church buildings, as beautiful as this one is, that that's really the modern day application of a passage like Haggai is how important a church building is and how we need to prioritize physical spaces. That's not really a faithful interpretation. That wouldn't be the point of this um, because we know that buildings come and go. In fact, this church, uh, just so in case you might be new here, um, has a long history of moving. Um, this wasn't always the building. In fact, we used to have a building on St. Charles, but even before that building, there was another building at a different location on St. Charles. And that's because buildings come and go, but God remains forever. And the defining mark of God's people is supposed to be God, God is supposed to be the defining mark of his people that when people look at God's people, what they see is the manifestation of God. What, what does God look like when he's within a person? What does God look like when he is in control of what these people do? What, what are their values look like? What are their priorities like? What does it look like when God is God over a person and over a people? Well, they weren't showing that. In fact, they were showing something that would be similar to what it looks like in, in our lives. There was a, a, some, some service to God, but not necessarily a priority for God. Uh, there was some work being done that would be called sacrifices and things that were required in the Bible, 
but there wasn't really a heart being given over to God. And so that's where we pick up in Haggai. Haggai has helped to motivate the people of God to begin rebuilding the temple. And they're in this process. And while all of Haggai takes place in about a four month period, um, it's now been a minute, about three months when we're gonna pick up in verse 10 of chapter two. And God speaks through Haggai again to God's people to help them to understand another dimension of what he's wanting from them and the importance of his grace in their lives. And so I'm gonna invite for you to stand today for the reading of God's word. We stand in honor of God. Uh, we want to acknowledge even in our posture that it's God who speaks to us through his word. And so hear the word of the Lord today from Haggai chapter two, beginning in verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord of armies says, ask the priest for a ruling. If a man is carrying consecrated meat in the fold of his garment and it touches bread, stew, wine, oil, or any other food, does it become holy? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai asked, if someone defiled by contact with a corpse touches any of these, pointing back to bread, stew, wine, oil, or any other food, does it become defiled? And the priest answered, it does, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai replied, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, referring to Israel. This is the Lord's declaration, and so is every work of their hands, even what they offer is defiled. Now, from this day on, think carefully. Before one stone was placed on another in the Lord's temple, what state were you in? When someone came to a grain heap for 20 measures, it only amounted to 10. When one came to the wine press to dip 50 measures from the vat, it only amounted to 20. I struck you, all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, but you didn't turn to me. This is the Lord's declaration. From this day on, think carefully. From the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, think carefully. Is there still seed left in the granary? The vine, the fig, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yet produced, but, hear the word of the Lord, but from this day on, I will bless you. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that today, by your grace, you would give clarity to our understanding of your word, that our hearts might be rightly given to you, and that you, God, would be the defining characteristic of what it means for us to be your people. Not a building, not a way of life, Lord, but you, God of armies. Would you be exalted in this place today? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Can't tell how many times I've sat down with a married couple, often sometimes with the husband, and he starts off with something like this. I don't get it. I don't, I just don't get it. Well, what don't you get? I don't get how she can say that I don't love her. I, I just, I don't get it. I, I work hard to provide. I, I, I do things around the house. I, I, I buy the things that she wants. I, I, we do these trips. I've, I've, I've sacrificed everything in my life. And she steps back and says that she doesn't feel like I love her. 
I just don't understand. Now, before any of you in here think, man, Chad, why are you bringing my details in the room? It's because we're not alone, right? In marriage relationships, we struggle with feeling love or respect in our marriages at times. And it frustrates, right, the other spouse when it's like, I'm doing all these things to show you that I love you or that I respect you. I, I don't understand how you're missing it, how this isn't adding up to feeling loved. And many times it's, it's through the hard work of maybe seeing a Christian counselor, of, of really kind of digging below the surface that you realize that the solution is so much more simple and in some ways more difficult than you ever realized. That what they need in order to experience your love is something so simple as just stopping all that you're doing and just sitting with them in love and enjoying them and valuing them for who they are. You know, many times we look and we look at how relationships work and we see that, you know, it's a lot of times that, that act, that, that sense of love that our spouse is so desperately looking for that it's often so difficult to deliver. And if we're not careful, sometimes we can turn then the pages of scripture and look like this and to say, you know, it's kind of like God's like a, a needy spouse, never satisfied, ne never really pleased, that it's just not enough. Well, can I just tell you, that's not this. That, that's not how God is. God's not just, you just can't ever do enough. Just not please you. Some of you are living that way right now. It, you kind of always feel like God's just like, it's not enough. It's not enough. You could, you could give God you know, X amount of dollars, but he'd want $1 more. Uh, you could give him X number of hours of service, but he would just want one more. That God is just never satisfied. But can I tell you that in a very important way, there is a similarity here that what God is after is not just all the things that you can do for him. He is truly after your heart. God wants your, your heart. He wants the very center of your emotion, the center of your will, the center of your thoughts and your volition what causes you to do what you do. He is after the very core of your being, of what makes you, you. That's what he wants. And can I tell you, that is what he's worthy of. He's worthy of nothing less than the very center of your life, the core of who you are. And that's exactly what he's communicating to his people here. He's after the core of their existence. He wants their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and nothing less. But the people, just like us, were, were doing some things. They were making sacrifices. And that's exactly what God uses then to get their attention. Look at the beginning of it right here. And let's begin to kind of make our way from this Old Testament passage that precedes Jesus and then his death, burial, and resurrection and then the establishment of the church and now the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. So we've got this continuum that we're gonna to have to go back and forward, back and forth from, okay? From now as the New Testament people of God back to the Old Testament and to be able to do that in a faithful way so that we make right application of something that's ancient like Haggai. Well, look at beginning of verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, and we see these little time markers. These are important for Haggai for us to understand just how tightly condensed this passage is and how the people were needing that constant drip of God's word. Can I just tell you just real quick in passing, that's how you and I are as well. 
We need the constant confrontation that comes from God's word. That's why it's important for us to be in the condition on a regular basis of being in God's word. My goal for every one of you in this room right now is that you will be a Bible reader, that you will read God's word four or more times a week. Notice it said four or more. Please don't hear me limiting you to four times. But, but the studies have shown that the most important indicator of whether you'll be a growing Christian or not is if you read the Bible four or more days a week. So, and, and so why? Why would that matter? Because God is constantly confronting you and shaping you and changing you with his word. He, he's, he's filling your life with his desires and his will and his track record of faithfulness, and it changes you. So be a Bible-reading Christian the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord of armies, God's reminding them of his control over all things. That's important because at this moment in Israel's history, they're not in the driver's seat of, of, of national security. That's somebody else. There's an outside entity that's got rulership over the land. And we see that continuing on all the way till we get to the first century. We see Rome kind of in the driver's seat of national security. But God is reminding us that throughout all of time, he remains Lord of armies. He's over all. And so there's nothing outside of his control. Please, please be comforted with that, that today God remains the Lord of armies. That when you look at conflicts all around the world and you think about tensions even here in our own United States, please remember that he is Lord God of armies and he has not changed. And so we can rest in his sovereign control of all things. But he turns to the priest. Now the priest played a very specific role that God had ordained in his word. And, and, and he asked them for a ruling. And that's exactly what they're invested with the authority to do. Back in Leviticus, we can go to the very place where God says that priests are to make this determination. In other words, there's gonna be some gray space where a priest is gonna have to make determination about whether this is clean or unclean. And so they're gonna have this job they have to do. So Haggai turns to them in accordance with the word of God and he asks them a question. And it's about consecrated or set apart Meat. Notice the question. If a man is carrying consecrated meat, that means, that means that this has been meat from an animal that's been sacrificed or given to God. And while many of the sacrifices given to God in the Old Testament would be completely burned up. In other words, you wouldn't go home with any meat. There were some sacrifices that could be made where you would go home with the meat. You would be able to, to eat of that sacrifice, but it was consecrated holy meat, Okay. So then he asked the question, he says, if a man is, is carrying this consecrated meat folded in the garment, in, in the fold of a garment, so kind of get the idea of like some butcher paper, if you will, kind of keeping the meat whole, but it kind of comes open. And then he says, and it touches something. It touches bread or it touches stew or wine or oil or any other food. He's asking the question, does the holiness of that piece of meat, when it touches something else, does that become holy too? Does the holiness keep hopping from one thing to the next? That's what he's asking. And what do the priests say? No, it's not the way that works. The holiness stops with the item that's been consecrated, but that holiness doesn't keep going from item to item. The question continues. Then Haggai asks, well, if someone defiled by contact with a, tor with, with a corpse touches any of these, now, what's the big deal there? You go back to the Old Testament again, accordance with the law, that if any person touches a dead 
body or a dead animal, they are now considered unclean, ritually unclean, which means they have to go through a period of being cleansed, usually like a seven day period, something like that, where they would have to be kind of like set apart because anything that they touch is also going to become unclean. And notice the question, if, a, if someone who's been defiled by contact with a dead corpse touches any of these things, referring back to bread, stew, wine, oil, or any other food, does it become defiled? In other words, can defilement pass off? You told me that holiness can't, but does defilement, like if I touch something else, does my uncleanliness transfer to it? And notice the priest's answer, it does. It becomes defiled. Well, isn't this interesting? So cleanliness doesn't spread. Holiness doesn't spread in that same way that defilement easily does. Now, let me just tell you, you already know this in part, and it's not an exact representation, but just think about it this way. If, if you've got a room full of 20 people and one person walks in with COVID, does the whole room get sick? Very likely, yes. But if you've got a room full of 20 people with COVID and one healthy person walks in, does everybody get well? No, it's not the way that works. We understand this in the, in, the, in the realm of communicable diseases. And while this is distinct and not the same, there is this understanding that we work with that Clint, like being well doesn't transfer to someone who's sick. But many times, especially if it's viral, what I have can affect a whole lot of people. Did you know that that is actually an illustration of a spiritual truth that's right here in Haggai that carries over for us today as the New Testament people of God? You see, here's a, here's a place where we see this really clear. I want you, if you can hold your place in Haggai to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter five. And I'm gonna do something I don't often do, which is I'm gonna read an entire chapter from this letter because it's so important for us to see how this often works. That this idea of defilement or uncleanliness, that even in our lives today, what God is saying here, we're gonna go back to it to really wrap it up. But I want you to see how it begins to manifest even today in our own lives. Paul writing to the church in Corinth, these are new believers. These are people that have come from, in many cases, a rough background, um, um, worshiping false gods, all of these things. And now they're together as God's people. And Paul is writing to them and he says this, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that not even, that's not even tolerated among the Gentiles. Meaning like, this is, guys, this is awful. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and removed from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I'm absent in the body, I'm present in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know, listen to this, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? It's the very same principle that Haggai is talking about here is you put a little bit of leaven or yeast, you know, into a batch of dough and it works its way in and you're like, well, I can't find it. It's because it's now in the whole thing. A little bit has worked its way into the whole lump. Clean 
out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with the old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, why is he communicating in this way? Why is Paul using this imagery from the Old Testament in order to communicate? Because the principle still remains, defilement spreads quickly. Defilement spreads quickly. That's a truth that you and I need to walk away with today. Remembering today, just as it was then, that defilement spreads quickly. Turn back over to Haggai. Notice that what he says, the priest answered, it becomes defiled. And then he wraps up in verse 14. Then Haggai replied, so is this people. And so is this nation before me. This is the Lord's declaration. And so is every work of their hands. Even what they offer there is defiled. God is confronting his people and he's confronting us again today that we must take uncleanliness. We must take in our case, sinfulness very, very seriously. Because as it works with COVID, as we all learn how just one person coming into a group that has a virus can quickly spread it. So it is with sin, so it is with uncleanliness that when we turn a blind eye, when we tolerate it, when we don't deal with it, it begins to infest the entire body. It begins to get into the whole lump, or as it is here in Haggai, it began to even impact their offerings. You see, they were coming and they were making sacrifices to the Lord, bringing at sacrifice to themselves, like literally parting with an animal in order to sacrifice it to God. But God is saying, because of the undefilement in your hearts, because your hearts have not been fully given to me, even the sacrifices you are making are defiled. God is looking at the heart. God is looking specifically at what these people are doing and he's looking specifically at you and I today as a body and he in love, he in love is calling you and I to live lives that are clean. For you and I to live lives that are characterized by sincerity and truth. He's calling us to in love even deal with one another in a way that causes someone to turn from their sin. You see the, that passage there in 1 Corinthians 5, it today to us can feel a little bit harsh of like, hey, if, you know, if this person's doing something, just get rid of them. We don't need them here. But in reality, what we see then in 2 Corinthians is the restoration of this brother. We see this being reunited because this person has turned from their sinful way and is being returned to Christ through repentance and faith that they would be restored. Do you see what Paul's doing? He's saying, when you do this, you are actually helping a person to come to the Lord, to be restored to fellowship with the Lord. And it is good for the whole body. Defilement spreads quickly. So let us take it seriously. But the passage doesn't stop there. He then turns and says, now from this day on, now from this day on, think carefully. And then he takes them a little bit into the past. Did you know it's okay for us at times to turn our attention to the past to remember, to, to reflect on and to learn from? God's wanting his people not to just dwell on the past, to get stuck in the past, to only live in their past, but he is wanting them to learn from their past. He, he wants them to be able to, in light of what has happened, to not do that again. 
to not keep going in the same direction. And here's what he says. Now, from this day on, think carefully. Before one stone was placed on another in the Lord's temple, what state were you in? What state were you in? Another way for maybe you and I to think about this is before salvation, through faith in Jesus Christ, what state were you in? Have you thought about that? For a lot of us, it's been a long time that we've been walking with the Lord. But can you just for a moment, in this moment, just think about what state you were in before the Lord entered into your life? Now, if you're here today and you say, I I really don't even know what you're talking about, Chad. I don't know that I've had this experience then I want you to hang with me for just a moment. We're gonna get to what does it mean to enter into a relationship with the Lord. But for the rest in this room, maybe who would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I've asked Jesus into my life and I've given my life over to him. I just want you to just think for a moment, what was the state of your life before Christ? You got that picture? Now I want you to fast forward just a little bit and I want you to go to that time in your life because we've all faced it. When then as a Christian, as a Christian, you began down to go down a road that you know you shouldn't have been on. That you started to, to participate in behavior, whether it was something like gossip, whether it was something like pornography, whether it was something like an inappropriate relationship, maybe it was something with a substance, whether it be food or alcohol or drugs, that even as a Christian, you began to dapple into something that you knew wasn't of the Lord. And I want you to think on that state. What was it like? What was it like? I don't know anybody that once they've left that state, they say, you know, there was actually a lot of really good things about it. No, no, people don't look back fondly on those moments when then in Christ, they have turned from his ways and begun to pursue the flesh. No, they look on it with regret. They look on it with anguish. They look on it in a way that causes them to never want to go back to that again. And that's what God is doing here. These were his people, already part of his covenant, but they have turned from his ways. And he's saying, Look at your life and look at some of the the state. When someone came to a grain heap for 20 measures, it only amounted to 10. In other words, like they worked so hard to be able to go to the grain heap to get get some food and it was only half as much as it should have been. It just seemed like food was disappearing. And then when you went to the wine press to dip out 50 measures from the vat, it only amounted to 20. I struck you. God saying, this was me. This was me. We talked about this already, indicator lights on the dash. You know, on your car, when you're driving along, there's little lights that can come on sometimes. Sometimes they're yellow, which means, hey, uh, attention. But then there's also the ones that come on that are red, which means you need to pull over. Uh, You need to give attention to this immediately. God is giving indicator lights to his people. He's saying, I did some things that were in yellow to get your attention. You didn't listen. So then I did some things that were red that were meant to stop you in your tracks and have you return to me. And he says, you've ignored them all. You've ignored them all. All the works of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, but you didn't turn to me. This is the Lord's declaration. From this day on, think carefully. From the 24th day of the ninth month, from this From the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, think carefully. 
Is there still seed left in the granary? The vine, the fig, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yet produced. What is he painting a picture of? He's saying, I want you to put this day down as a day that you return to me. And now I want you to keep up with what happens when I am in control. When you are rightly oriented to me, what begins to happen? You see, a lot of people have done this down through the ages. I love one of the, the, the great heroes of our faith, George Mueller. Um, he was one who was a, a, a German who was faithful to the Lord, who had a heart for children and opened an orphanage and made a decision in his own heart to just look to the Lord for provision, that he wouldn't make known his needs. In other words, if he knew, man, today we need a, a hundred loaves of bread to feed all these kids, I'm just gonna bring that need to the Lord because God loves these children more than anyone and God can provide. And so he would go to God in secret and say, God, you know our need. You know we need this much bread and this much milk. And in ways that George Mueller kept up with, kept a, a tight ledger on, God would provide. I mean, like down to the point that sometimes like someone would be going along with a bread truck and it would break down in front of the orphanage. In order to change the wheel, they need to lighten the load. And so they'd say, do you need some bread? I mean, just incredible, miraculous ways that God was providing for the needs of those who loved him. And George Mueller, with specific date and time, was able to look back at the track record of God's faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, that's what God is inviting them to. That's why he's so specific about dates. He's not just obsessive compulsive about dates. He's like, write it down, write it down. When you gave yourselves back to me and, and began to prioritize my presence in your life, my presence in Israel, my presence in my temple to be with you, write down the date when the priority changed and began then to keep up with what life looked like on the other side. You see, when I hear testimonies of people who said, my life looked this way while I was going down this road of maybe doing things on the, on the internet, that I shouldn't have been doing. But then when I finally gave my life to the Lord and began to get the help that I needed and the support that I needed and all these things, this is what life began to look like. And some of them can even go back to a specific day and time when they turn from those behaviors. I, time after time after time is I have talked with people and celebrate recovery. They can look back many times to a specific moment, even as a believer, when God broke through and they gave him everything and their life was changed. What if today is that day for you? What if the reason, I, I, a lot of you are here most Sundays, but, but I bet there's somebody even in this room right now that you're like, man, against all odds, I'm here today. I mean, like Chad, if you knew how unlikely it is that I would be in this room right now, I say, I say that is absolutely how God works. There is no coincidence. He absolutely has you here for this moment because he wants to get your attention with all the indicator lights so that you will stop today, write it down and give your life fully to him. Whether that's for the very first time or whether it's you've been walking with him, but you have turned and you've been going your own way and now is the time to give your life back fully to him because this is the final truth that we see in verse 19, deliverance comes by grace. Notice what God says, but from this day on, I will bless you. But 
is one of my favorite words in the New Testament. But over in Ephesians, as Paul is making clear what our state was, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were under the weight of guilt like everybody else and all these things. But then he turns the corner and he says, but, but God, who is rich in mercy, while we were yet dead in our sins, caused us to be alive with Christ. You've been saved by grace through faith. It's the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. That's a summary of what Paul is communicating there. And can I tell you, those words are echoed right here in Haggai. That God is saying, but I, but I. Did you know that it is God who saves? It wasn't their decision to start building this. Remember, they would have persisted in their ways if God had not confronted them with his word through his prophet Haggai. They would have kept going, ignoring every indicator light and being like, I just don't know why life's not working out. I don't know why I keep going to get 20 measures and I can only get 10 or 50 and only 20. I just, I don't get it. God realizes that and God says, I, I will save, I will deliver, I am worthy. And he gets the attention of his people through his word to bring them back to him. And then here he says, I will bless you you. Deliverance comes by grace. And we see that fully revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, it's no coincidence that Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is the one who better than anybody else in the, in the New Testament really develops a lot of the images that we see in the Old Testament, like the temple and like the sacrifices and like the, the, the covenant with God. He helps us to understand and appropriate that in, in a right way to Christ and what he's done. And what you need to understand is that God today is not looking for you to make a blood sacrifice to him any longer. He's not looking to you to say, go buy a sheep, go buy a goat, go get an ox and then bring it and make a sacrifice here. In fact, our modern ears are like, that's really weird. I don't even understand that. That was one of the the defining marks of the people of God was their sacrificial system and how they regularly sacrificed to God. And you would think of all things that would still be in place, that God would want us to bring our animals and to lay those at his feet. But notice what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, but Christ has appeared as high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. Tabernacle, another word for that would be temple. That is not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. What is the writer of Hebrews getting at? That a sacrifice has been made. It's been made for you and it's been made for me. And it was Jesus Christ himself, the lamb of God, who was taking away the sins of the world. The lamb that was spoken of way back in Genesis, that God would provide himself the lamb. And then God did provide the lamb, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who made a once for all sacrifice for you and me. Hebrews 10.10, by his will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. No more blood sacrifices needed. The price has been paid. Sin has been atoned once and for all. And that blood still has effect. It still has power. There's power in the blood. 
And that blood is able to wash and cleanse you of every sin, every sin, every sin in your life, those in the past, those of today, and those in the future to cleanse you once and for all. And then that brings us to this place where then we are free to worship him, to worship him, number one, with our lives. Notice what Paul says in Romans 12, one and two, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, I urge you to present your bodies, your bodies, your lives as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing and perfect, the perfect will of God. We now worship him with our lives. We worship him with our gifts. Notice what Paul says in Philippians 4.18, but I have received everything in full and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied having received from Epaphroditus what you provided. And what is this that he has provided? It's been a financial gift that, that Epaphroditus has delivered to them. But notice how Paul now describes it. A fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. God is pleased when we worship him with our financial gifts, not in order to buy his affection, but in celebration and in rejoicing and in a life overflowing with gratitude because we have received everything we don't deserve. His forgiveness, his love, his faithfulness that will endure forever. And so therefore we are free now to give him everything, including our finances. We are now going to worship him with our lives, our gifts, and then thirdly, our praise. Through, therefore, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 15, therefore through him, Jesus, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That's what God is wanting you to do is just to praise him, rejoice in him, rejoice that he has given his own son for you. Rejoice that this son desires that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will belong to him. Rejoice, praise him that right now he wants us to be at work in places like Afghanistan and in Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Iran and places like Israel and Gaza, places like Ukraine and Russia, places like North Korea and China. He wants us to bring the gospel there because he has declared that one day every nation, tribe and tongue will be gathered around his throne and worshiping him so we can go in confidence knowing, knowing that his blood was shed for everyone. And so we can go with this gospel in confidence, knowing that it will be effective in these, the most difficult places on the earth. We worship him with our lives, our gifts, our praise, and our good works. The writer of Hebrews goes on in chapter 13 and verse 16, don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. Share your table with one another. This week of Thanksgiving, who is it that you can think of that, will be alone unless someone invites them to their table. Would you be that person? Would you be the one willing to open up your table to the one, to the stranger, to the one who would otherwise eat alone? God is pleased with such sacrifice because that's exactly what he did for you and me. He brought us to his table. That's what the writer of Psalm 23, David says, is he has prepared a table for me. He has anointed my head with oil. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He's brought us to his table. And so he invites us now in this life to bring others to ours. Good works. And then finally, we worship with our faith. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, 
I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. Faith. Faith. God continues to be honored with faith. You see, the reality is that right now, this morning, God is calling every person in this room to a life of faith. And the posture of faith throughout the Bible was a posture of giving to God. In faith, in the Old Testament, people would make sacrifices. In faith, people would make sacrifice of time in order to build the temple and to contribute to it. And then in the New Testament, we see then this faith called for with the works of our hands. But can I just tell you that an act of faith for every one of us is just to lift these hands and symbolically say, God, I belong to you. May my life be characterized. May the works of my hands be characterized by faithfulness to you. So I'm gonna invite everyone in this room today as we worship in response to God's word, I want you just to, maybe just sitting right where you are to extend your hands like this, just to say, God, in a fresh way, I'm giving you my life. This posture right here, this is I wanna receive. This is God I give. This morning, I wanna invite you to give to give to God the praise that he is worthy of. I want you to invite to God, to give to God your life in a fresh way. Maybe there's been a part of your life that I've talked about today. Maybe it's a substance that's taken on a new grip in your life. Maybe it's an activity. Maybe it's something some, like internet pornography or something like that that's so rampant in, in, in the world today. I don't know what it might be. It might be your tongue is just out of control. You can't keep yourself from talking negatively about someone else and it's just eating you up. I don't know what it is, but would you give that to him today? Would you return to him today? There may be a person in this room that this is the first day that you've ever realized that what God wants is the very core of who you are. He's not looking for your money. He's not looking for your time. He's not looking for an occasional worship service. He's looking for your heart. Would you give your heart to him today? That happened in my life when I was 16 years old. I just got down on my knees like this. And I said, God, as best as I know how, I wanna give my life to you. God, I know that you gave Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. And I'm asking you please to forgive me. Thank you for giving Jesus for me. I give my life to you. It was a prayer just like that. And it wasn't anything about the words I said, but it was a moment where God reached down in his love and he brought me into his kingdom forever. I am who I am because of him. And so I invite you, give your life to him. It is where life is found. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I pray be a time of worship. That just as you were pleased with the worship of your people, for them to carefully think about their ways. God, I pray that in this moment, we would carefully think about ours. That if there's some part of our life right now that is just wasting away, almost as if it were just under the attack of, of blight and mildew and hail, God, may we realize those indicator lights are going off by your grace meant to lead us back to you. So please, God, would we give our lives in a fresh way back to you. But Lord, I pray for the one person in this room that is here against all odds, in order for you, the God of heaven, to get their heart, to get their life, I pray they would give themselves fully to you. I'm gonna invite for everyone to stand in this moment. Some of you may need to come and just kneel at these steps and give your life back to God in a fresh way. Myself, I'll be here, Pastor Noah's right here. We wanna be able to pray with you. Please respond to the grace of God.
He is our deliverer.